The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Actually, Mark chapter number 16 is where we principally will be this morning, but I do want to read for us the text to uh, kind of get us where we should be in our thinking concerning uh, Mark's understanding of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mark 15, beginning with verse 42, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. And it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were terrified. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Just as the sun rises, dispelling the darkness of the world, the church sees the rising of the true light of the world, the Son of God. We know that our Redeemer lives. Alexander Shememen. It was at the beginning of July that we entered the city of Jerusalem with Jesus and walked with him in what is, without question, the most important week in all of human history. I continue to pray that by taking time to walk slowly with Jesus during that week, we would grasp more fully the deliverance that is ours through the God-forsakenness of the cross so that we too will sing and dance for joy at what God has done. 
be like Declan, who was dancing down here beside, behind his dad during the singing. Just kind of hoping when the kids read the scriptures, when the appropriate time came, they would have, would have danced a little bit for us. Okay, Sammy, you probably was, I don't know how everybody would do with dancing kids up here, but dance in your hearts then, you know? As we come to chapter 16, though, we might, we might think that Mark should have done a bit better of a job in wrapping up the story. And here's what I mean. In most Bibles, you're going to have two endings to Mark's gospel. The first ending is in chapter 8. And then in many Bibles, you're going to see a little note that says, like mine does, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. It's agreed upon by most Bible scholars that Mark did, uh, in fact, abruptly end his gospel in what we have in verse number 8. And what uh, many New Testament scholars believe happened was that a second ending was tacked on at a latter date, verses 9 through 20. The idea is that they felt like more needed to be told, that that Mark's gospel didn't have quite the ending you know, that maybe the other Gospels had, and uh, they made some additions. And while I don't think the add-ons in verses 9 through 20 are in any way heretical, I will be honest that I do find them unhelpful as they get in the way of the two concluding points that Mark is making as he tells the story of the resurrection. Now, it's very important right now, and I realize I made this mistake at St. James, Please don't spend time reading verses 9 through 20 and deciding if I'm right or wrong. Listen to what I'm saying. (laughs) Do the other on your own time. Now listen to what I'm saying, because I do believe they get in the way of the point that Mark is making, and he's making two very important points, even though it appears that he did, in fact, end his gospel rather abruptly in verse number 8. If you were a first century writer who was looking to gain credibility with an audience, the last thing you would have done is to give prominence to women as the initial witness to the case that you were presenting. It would be like someone writing the definitive history of the New York Yankees and having the first three chapters written by the fans of the Boston Red Sox. Just wouldn't have held up very well. But just as Miriam, the sister of Moses, took her timbrel and along with the other women danced and sang about the deliverance of Israel from the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army, so we have these blessed women, followers of Jesus, telling us about the first morning of the new day. And adding that, that, that section later, in my opinion at least, takes away from the impact of those testimonies that Mark is using to testify to the subversive nature of the gospel. For with the gospel, a new day begins, which makes it possible then for women who are followers of Jesus Christ to be credible and reliable in their witness, just as credible and reliable as the men. That's the subversive nature of the gospel, and we need to see that. In the first eight verses of chapter number 16. You see, when Jesus walks out of the tomb, he initiates a new world. 
a new world that is, as it were, still catching up with him in all of his perfection and with the glory, final and full glory, that is coming. And we say, well, what, what will that final and full glory look like? Well, it will look like these women who came to the tomb. And, and as we look at Mark's gospel as a whole, we will see this glory revealed in many other ways as well. The life of Jesus, as told by Mark and the other gospel writers, is what we would call a precursor to the life that is initiated in the resurrection. So, so let me just ask you, what happens to hunger, disease, and death when Jesus comes on the scene in Mark's gospel? Well, you have people are fed, 4,000 of them in fact, hungry in a desolate place. The disciples are like, what are we going to do? We can't feed these people. And Jesus says, well, bring me what you have. He brings what he has and he breaks it. He blesses it. Everybody gets fed. What happens to people who are sick, let down, you know, through the roof on that, you know, contraption, they're paralyzed, and Jesus, what? Rise, take up your bed, walk, healings. People are raised from the dead. But even beyond the issues of hunger, disease, and death, there is something else that Jesus brings through now his resurrected life. What happens when the prominence and power-hungry abusers meet Jesus? What about the oppressors that we see over and again in the Gospels? What happens to them? Jesus confronts them. Jesus puts them in their place. Jesus warns his followers, hey, don't be like them. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And even in his death on the cross, when these power-hungry abusers mock him as he's hanging on the cross what does paul tell us if they knew what they were doing they wouldn't have done it because even there he is victorious over them though he doesn't even speak a word to them all of these are signs then of the new day that is initiated in the resurrection of christ and the women are then the first witnesses to this cataclysmic event that unfolds, that is still unfolding in, in this very room, by the way, even this morning, as we join their witness, as we join their witness and testify to the subversive nature of the gospel. And I want you to see that here. I don't want you to just rush by this. Something happens dramatically when Christ comes out of the tomb. And what happens is, Things that are wrong begin to be put right. And as they are put right, Christ is gaining, gaining the victory. But there's a second reason that, that these add-ons from 9 to 20, I think, get in the way. Uh, and that is, as Mark concludes his gospel, and you read from verse number 1 to verse number 8, you have to, you know, the careful reader has to say like, hey, somebody's missing. Somebody's missing. In fact, a very prominent person is missing in what Mark gives us as an account between verse number 1 and verse number 8. Anybody know who's missing? Anybody got it? Who's missing? Jesus is missing. Jesus is missing. That's odd, right? That's odd. Jesus is missing. 
In the other three Gospels, the writers include this very dramatic conversation, these very dramatic confrontations that Jesus has with his disciples. None of us, if you've read, you know, any of them can forget the, the Emmaus Road Travelers or, uh, you know, some of the, the, the perennial favorites is by the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus is making breakfast. Hey, you guys caught any fish? They haven't caught anything. We'll come in here. Peter sees it's Jesus. And then you have this great restoration. Peter, do you love me? I mean, we all remember these things. But in Mark's gospel, Mark doesn't include any mention of Jesus. After Joseph of Arimathea takes him down from the cross, places him in the tomb. Now, now the add-ons talk a little bit about Jesus, and that's why I think they get in the way of what Mark is doing. And why it's important for us, why it's important for us to get this. And I think if we get to here, it will help us see one of the most subversive things about the gospel. And how the gospel unearths and takes apart the systems of the world in which we live. I think it is fair to say that on resurrection morning, no one believed that Jesus would rise from the dead. And remember, over, over a brief period of time leading up to his entrance into Jerusalem, he had told the disciples that he, in fact, would die and that he would be raised from the dead three days later. You might think that they would have remembered that, and as they saw his crucifixion, they might have said to themselves, we better get to the tomb early because he's coming out. But they're not there, right? They're, they're not there. And, and instead of being in front of the tomb waiting for him, the disciples actually are nowhere to be found. And it's the women who come, but not even the women are coming to celebrate a resurrection. Why are they coming? They're coming to further care for a dead body. And what's their concern as they approach the tomb? They're like, hey, that stone, that rock in front of the entryway is really big. Who are we going to get to move the stone? I mean, that's what they're talking about, right? In verse number three, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And as they approach, what do they see? Well, hey, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Someone's rolled the stone away. And so they come inside. And once they get inside, they're amazed, right? They're amazed. They're surprised. They're surprised by what Peter calls, or excuse me, what um, Mark calls a young man, a young man. You see it there in verse number five, entering the tomb. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. As a gospel writer, Mark pays very little attention to angels. All over Matthew, angels, right? All over Luke, angels, appearing to shepherds, appearing to Mary, appearing to Joseph, appearing to uh, Zechariah. You know, uh, angels at the tomb, angels everywhere. Mark goes, no, I'm going to call him a young man. And I'm going to have the women come in and they're going to have this brief little encounter with him. I'm not going to even show, Jesus isn't even going to show up at this scene. It's just these women and this, this young man. Now, we know it's an angel because of their, the, the description Mark gives and of their response. Dressed in a white robe, they're alarmed. He speaks to them, don't be alarmed. This is God's messenger telling them, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. 
There you will see him just as he told you. Now, I think verse number seven is very helpful. In fact, I think verse number seven is the interpretive clue as to what Mark is driving at as he gives us his account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You probably don't remember, so go back just a couple chapters to chapter 14 and look at verse number 26. After the, after the uh, upper room uh, Passover and the institution of the Lord's Supper, remember they, go, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives. And, re- and here's what Jesus says to them. You will all fall away. He's talking to his disciples, right? You will all fall away. It's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then you have Peter's boast, right? I won't fall away. So so two things match up there then with what the angel says to the women inside the tomb. One is Galilee. And the other is, is the disciples and who does he specifically mention? Go, you see it back there in chapter number 16. Who does he specifically go tell his disciples and Peter? And we're not sure what's, what's going on with Peter, right? He's already denied the Lord. What's going to happen with Peter? I mean, that's what these first readers would have been thinking. What's going on? And here, I think we find the great purpose that Mark is giving us in his account of the resurrection. Galilee becomes a sign, as it were, of a new day that has risen in Jesus. These women, uh, like the angelic witness, are to go forth and tell people. They, they are to go from this empty tomb with the message, get to Galilee. Now, I don't think it would at all be out of bounds to say, like, actually, no one should have showed up at the tomb on the third day to begin with. Where should they all have gone to? They should all have gone to Galilee, right? Now, they say, well, that's a big place. Well, they would have known where to go. Mark just doesn't tell us a specific spot. Those disciples and the women and the followers, should have just, Jesus died, all right, let's get to Galilee. We're road tripping. We're going to get there before him. We're going to meet him there. Everything's going to be great. But instead, they come to the tomb with their spices and it ready to anoint a dead body. And out of the mercy and the grace of God, they're reminded, hey, he's not here. Remember what he said to you? Now go tell his disciples and Peter, because Peter's on the outs right now. We want Peter to know that he's waiting for you in Galilee. And, And what's the response of the women? In verse number eight, they go out and they fled from the tomb, they're trembling, their astonishment has seized them. They don't say anything. What are they? Oh, they're afraid. So what are, we to, what are we to make of this? You know, I don't read the response of the women as negative at all, you know, as if somehow they're inadequate, that maybe Jesus should have chosen somebody else. Quite, you know, and I ask myself this question, quite honestly, why, why don't we have much room for those kinds of emotions. Why don't we have much room for trembling and astonishment and perhaps even fear? You see, it's because a new day has dawned in Jesus Christ 
that we should be able to have a full range of emotions and exercise those emotions as a response to the subversive nature of the gospel that has to keep unearthing in us the fallow ground. I've been reading that a lot out of Micah. Break up the fallow ground. And, and almost every morning I read that, I say, oh God, what part of my ground, what part of my heart is getting hard against you that no longer is astonished, that no longer is trembling, that no longer fearful when I hear a word from God, when I hear a message from God, from his word, that, that I, I don't have some kind of a visceral, emotional response to it, and I'm just kind of, you know, bouncing along in, in my life. You see, faith in Jesus, however, you know, it, it, it arrives to us through the word and through our experience becomes the key then to living in this new day. The women did have to go out regardless of what their emotional state might have been. They had to go out. They had to leave the tomb. And what they began to experience and what they began to understand is that through Jesus, all of the wrongs have indeed been put right. And that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they indeed were experiencing a new day. But they had to let go of their expectations. And in this case, the women had to let go of even the preparations that they had made coming to the place where they thought they were going to meet Jesus. I mean, that's, that's a good talking point, isn't it? There's a sense in which we should always be prepared to meet with God, to meet with God in worship. We talk a lot about that. Bring your Bibles, have your Bibles open, read the text. You know, we give them to you a week ahead, read them through the week, get your hearts ready, get your hearts prepared. But you know what I find also that disciples often do? They're, they're just all, maybe, I don't, want, I don't want to discourage you, overly prepared, too prepared, like ready to, you know, they got God just as they want God. And they brought their stuff to the God that, you know, they've made. And God needs to break through that stuff. A new day has dawned in Jesus Christ. Subverting everything. Not, not just the things in Mark's world, but the things in our world, the things in our church as well. And this is where the good news of a new day, I think, really comes into view. As Mark tells us about Galilee. Now, now notice... In chapter 15, and look back up at verse number 40. These same women, at least some of them that are found at the tomb, here's how Mark describes them in verse 40. They're at the cross, but they're looking on from a distance. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And then what does Mark tell us? When he was in where? Galilee. What did they do? They followed him, and they ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You've got Galilee in three places in just a few chapters, which again, I, I think becomes a really important thing for us to think about and for us to remember. You see, they had met Jesus first in Galilee, and there they were ministering to him. There they were following him. But now they come to the tomb and they think they're coming to minister to him again. Except no. He in his new risen body is going to minister to them in a new way that they have not yet experienced. In the new day, in the new age that was raised and born in 
Jesus Christ. They come to minister. That's no longer needed. What remains is for them to fully follow him. And Galilee will play an important role, a prominent role in their lives and of the disciples as he recovers them, as he stills confidence into them that they are his and belong to him. And all of this then turns into the Spirit's engagement as they take this subversive gospel, this gospel that unearths things into the world in which they live. Now, I've asked this question before, and I'm going to ask it again this morning. Have you located your Galilee? Have you located your Galilee? Do you know the place in your life where restoration needs to take place? Where restoration, perhaps God willing, is taking place right now? And for some, it might be a place you're avoiding. You don't want to go there. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to meet Jesus there. You're not sure you're really wanting to do that. Sounds like a good idea, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, do you know that place where you meet Jesus and Jesus meets you? No fanfare, no displays of self-importance, fear, trembling, thanksgiving, perhaps even doubt. But growing in faith that in Christ a new day was initiated in which your life is changed. Your life is transformed by his grace. You know, that, that's a concept that some might struggle with. What do you mean this Galilee thing? What do I, hey, if you need help kind of understanding that concept, let me know. I'd love to talk to you more about it. I think about the years of my Christian experience and the various places where I've met Jesus and all of them kind of have this, this, this idea of Galilee, a place of confrontation, a place of grace and mercy, a place of restoration in my life, a place I hope you're familiar with in yours as well. As the most important week in all of human history concludes, a new day, a new history in Jesus Christ is now written. The future firmly and eternally in the hands of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a day filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness. It is a day filled with power and the hope of empowering of the Spirit in our lives, taking away the fear, taking away the worry, taking away whatever struggles we may have, instilling within us as a church confidence that then compels us to go out and tell others that this new day has indeed come. We may, we may indeed be growing tired of the world that we are living in at this moment. Tired of a world that celebrates all of the wrong things, cares little about the right things. But I would encourage us, I would encourage us as a church to take that fatigue, to take maybe resentment or maybe bitterness or maybe anger take all of it and place it into the care of God and allow God's Holy Spirit to energize you with the message that the enslavement has ended we can dance with Miriam we can go 
with these women and bear witness of the risen Christ. The power of sin defeated and by faith through grace, apart from any ability that we have to earn it, we are entering into recipients of a new day in Jesus Christ. Father, I give you thanks for your word uh, to us this morning. I give you thanks that we no longer have to worry or be afraid or have some concern that you will not receive us, sinners. For Galilee is open to all who would come to be restored by the crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we take some quiet moments to consider these things, I pray, O Lord, that by your Spirit and through your Word, you might open our hearts then to whatever our need might be, so that we are ready then to receive the fellowship of your people at your blessed table. In Jesus' name, let's be quiet before the Lord. And now, Father, I pray that your church, having fed on your word, now coming to this table would be strengthened by grace as we observe once again the blessedness of what Jesus instituted as his body was broken and his blood was shed, that sins would be forgiven. And that a new day, a new age would dawn through his risen life. And thank you that we live in that day. And until it's complete, we will continue to live by faith. Coming to this table, coming to your word, seeking the blessing. Until you return, Lord Jesus. In whose blessed name we pray. Amen. The men who are serving communion uh, with me would please join me at the front. And as they do, I just want to remind you that the Lord's table is open to all who are followers of Jesus Christ. We encourage you, having dealt with your own sins in your own life, to come and eat and drink and be blessed the Lord. We do this not only in remembrance of what he did for us, but in the present reality of what he continues to do for us. The men will be stationed around the room, and uh, when you're ready, you can come and receive the elements and go back to your 
uh, seed and we will eat and drink uh, together as, uh, as one body. Teresa Hunter and Charlene Northrup and Anna Horning, Kelly Miller, Zeke Nye, my mom, Hazel Prater and Janet McKinney, I hope you're joining with us in the receiving of the Lord's table there in your house watching on our Facebook feed and as we join together here as a body once again uh, demonstrating the Catholicity of our faith, our oneness in Christ, the body of Christ, uh, we do so in remembrance of him. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, it is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. 
For more information about Durkee Town, please visit our website at www.durkeetown.org.